Grab your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to continue our brand new series. I don't know if you can call it a series if it lasts for months and months and months, but we're going to be walking through 2 Corinthians together. Last week, we took a look at the big picture. Who were the Corinthians? What's their story? Where did they live? Uh, what was their relationship with the Apostle Paul? All of those big questions uh, we talked about last week, and hopefully you can catch that on the, the internet uh, this week sometime. So today we'll continue in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 is where we'll start in just a second. On Jackson's second birthday, he's six years old now, on Jackson's second birthday, we had a birthday party for him at one of those bouncy places. You know what I'm talking about, where somebody buys a warehouse and then puts a bunch of inflatable stuff in it and then charges, charges an obscene amount of money for you to come and let your kids bounce around. And, and so we did a big birthday party there, invited all of his little friends. That afternoon, once we were home, he was real lethargic and he just wanted to sit around and kind of lay around, which, you know, for maybe some kids would be totally normal after spending, an, you know, the morning bouncing around, but not for Jackson, because Jackson has the gentlest, most quiet heart of any little boy I've ever met, but he perpetually lives like he has his finger stuck in an electric outlet. He's just always bouncing around, always moving around, always happy, even when he's on the couch watching TV, you know, he's watching it upside down. That's just him. And so from his earliest days up to these days, anytime he starts acting still and quiet and calm, we know that he's sick. And so he's either sick right now or he's getting ready to be. And so that afternoon he was acting like that and we knew something was wrong. And so we took his temperature and it was off the charts. And and so it was a Saturday, of course, isn't it always a Saturday when your kids get sick? And so our option, you know, kind of was hospital or one of those urgent care places because he had a really high temperature. And so we opted for the urgent care places. Now we know that they have those places for kids. We didn't know that at the time. And so we found the one that was closest to us. And, and we walked into this, this place, this urgent care place. And it was like they had, you know, like never seen, never talked to a child in their whole lives. I don't even mean, even mean like they had never treated a child. I just mean like they didn't have sons, they didn't have daughters, nieces, nephews, children running around their neighborhood because he was like a foreign object to them. And they were gruff with him and rough and had zero compassion. You know, nothing brings out the fire in a parent like somebody not having compassion on your kid. And they just didn't understand, you know, why he wouldn't sit still or why he wouldn't let them, you know, do whatever it is they wanted to do. I remember they were they were taking an x-ray of him and he wouldn't stay perfectly still for the couple of minutes that it took him to take the picture and I'm like he's two years old you know and so we had to go in and pin him down so they could take a picture and he's crying and Amanda's crying and I'm about to come unglued on somebody and I'm a pretty put together person in public but you can imagine what it would be like if I just let all of this out on somebody that was what was getting ready to happen to these people at the urgent care place it was it was awful and to, to, to end the, the, the evening at the urgent care place, they brought out, and the preachers exaggerate. I'm just going to tell you up front. Pre preachers exaggerate. It's just what we do. They teach us that, you know, um, somewhere. Um, but I'm not exaggerating now. They literally pulled out the largest needle I have ever seen stuck in anyone, and they put it in my two-year-old little boy. Man, it was awful. It was awful. Because there was so much pain, physical pain, Emotional pain. Just pain. I mean, I hate pain. In fact, we do everything that we can, don't we, to, to push pain away, to keep it at a distance. But you know as well as I do that that's impossible. Whether you're trying to protect yourself or you're trying to protect someone that you love 
or care for. As hard as you try to keep pain away, to keep it out of the house, you can't do it. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. If Jesus' words are true, then none of us are going to be successful at a lifetime of pushing pain away. What are we going to do with it? If the question, question isn't if we will experience it, what do we do with it when it comes? And what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 today is that you and I, we should leverage our affliction to bring comfort to someone else. You and I, we are going to be afflicted in big ways and small ways. So for some, it's an affliction of, of sickness and disease. It's cancer. It's, it's uh, you know, heart problems. It's, it's sickness. It's hospital. It's all of that. For other people, it's, it's a little bit smaller than that. It's a tense relationship at work. You feel like your boss is not giving you favor and favoring everyone else. Or maybe it's a family situation, you know, where, you know, one of your kids is going through something and it's really kind of put the bind on you. It's maybe a relationship that isn't completely restored and there's just weirdness and awkwardness there. Maybe you're single and you feel like you're afflicted with singleness because you'd really like to get married. Maybe you're in a marriage and you feel afflicted in your marriage because your spouse isn't what they promised they would be. We're all going to experience that affliction and you and I have a choice. What will we do with that affliction? What will we do with that pain? Will we keep it to ourselves or will we put it in play? So that somebody else who's walking through something similar can find comfort in our story, in our experience. That's what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded. Knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that many thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Now, hopefully you caught in these nine verses two key words, comfort and affliction. In fact, they're key words for all of Second Corinthians. You'll see them over and over and over again when you read through the entire book. But Paul talks about a specific affliction that they are experiencing in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. Now, Asia is not Asia the way that you and I are thinking of Asia. It's Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. 
And it says, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Now, some scholars uh, have some guesses of what kind of a burden, what kind of affliction the Apostle Paul is talking about. Uh, he speaks to the Corinthians as if they would know exactly what he's talking about. He, so he doesn't give us the details, but uh, they seem to know what he's talking about. Uh, there are a few theories. One theory is actually found in Acts chapter 19. I want you to turn there and I want to show it to you. There's no way for us to know with 100% certainty what kind of affliction he's talking about. But Acts chapter 19 is probably a pretty good guess. It's definitely an affliction. Acts chapter 19, verse 17. This became known to both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Now, now Ephesus is in Asia Minor, which Paul is referring to back in 2 Corinthians. Verse 18, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So what was happening is Paul went into Ephesus and he started preaching the gospel. And as we said last week, every time the gospel is preached, three things happen. It's rejected, it's ignored, and it's received. And many people were receiving the gospel, the good news that God has sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And at 33, he laid down that perfect life to die on a cross. Three days later, he was buried. Uh, or three days later, he uh, was raised from the dead. He he ascended up into heaven and one day he will return. So Paul goes into Ephesus and he preaches that message and many, many people believe in it and they believe in Jesus. They become Christians and it changes the way that they live. And in Ephesus, they were practicing dark magic. This kind of magic isn't sleight of hand. There is a kind of magic in the world that is inspired by demons. It's not just tricks and illusions. And these Ephesians, they were practicing that kind of magic. And when they became Christians, they said, Jesus is the light. We've been in the darkness. We can't be in the darkness anymore. So they take all all their magic stuff and they put it in a pile and they burn it. And it was really, really expensive and valuable what they burn. Skip down to verse 23. And about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Now, the way is how they would refer to Christians. Isn't that better than saying, I go to church? Now, why are you in this neighborhood serving people? Because I'm a part of the way. Why are you being so kind to me? Why are you asking me to lunch today? Because I'm a part of the way. Why are you sponsoring a little boy and... El Salvador, because I'm a part of the way. That sounds so much better than saying, well, I go to church. The way of what? The way of Jesus. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. Now, Artemis was the Greek mother goddess. And, and Artemis had a temple in Ephesus that was just amazingly beautiful. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the, or seven wonders of the ancient world. And so people would come from all over the world to worship in the temple of Artemis. And this man, Demetrius, and his fellow uh, tradesmen and craftsmen, they made a lot of money by making things that tourists would buy on their way to worship in Artemis's temple. Verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon your, this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. 
Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging Gaius and Aristarchus, companions of Paul from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. So what happened is Paul has come in with his friends and fellow ministers. They preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus in Ephesus. Many people have responded and it's changed the way that they live their lives. It changes the way they spend their money. This man named Demetrius, he's a businessman. And what a businessman care about? They care about the bottom line. And he can see that his bottom line is going to be affected because many people, not just in Ephesus, but in all of that region, are responding to Jesus. And it's changing how they worship and it's changing how they spend their money. And so he gathers up all the people like him and said, we got to do something. And they're so filled with rage that they might lose their business. And their goddess Artemis, which they believed in, was going to, to be disregarded and be thrown away. They started chanting, great is the goddess Artemis of the Ephesians. And they're shouting it and they're chanting it and it's starting to stir up the city. Have you, ever, have you ever been around somebody who's kind of just all stirred up and all hyped up and tensed up? And, and it just kind of like then you start feeling that way, like they're all worked up and you're not really at the beginning. But by the time you finish with the conversation, you're like, yeah, I feel the same way as them. Well, I don't even know what they were talking about, but I feel that in my, my spirit right now, in my soul. And so that's what happened. And they started stirring everything up in the whole city. Now, Ephesus was not it's not a large place compared to Houston, but it was a large city in the first century. So you can imagine a whole city being stirred up into a mob. And so they grab two of Paul's friends, his fellow ministers, and they drag them into this theater, this arena. And the whole city has filed in. Imagine how scary that would be to be those two men. Imagine how terrifying it would be to be Paul when really this is all your fault. You're the one being blamed, but you're not the one in the middle of that mob. And some scholars think at this point in Paul's time in Ephesus, the city which had been open to him where he was free to come and go began to turn against him. And this may be the affliction that he's talking about. But look how he describes it back in 2 Corinthians. He says that this affliction, um, that they were burdened excessively. That word excessively, it's where we get our word hyperbole. So imagine a burden, imagine a pressure so intense, imagine an affliction so intense that you would use the word hyperbole, you would stretch it out just to describe what it felt like. And it says it was beyond their strength so that they even despaired of life. What that means is it means the Apostle Paul would wake up in the morning. And he would look out onto his day the same way that you wake up in the morning and you think about your day. And he would be so deflated. He would be in so much despair that he would think, why should I even get out of bed today? I don't even have the strength to live out this one day that's in front of me. And just a little rewind here. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. This is not you and me going in seasons where we like ourselves, hate ourselves, like what we have, hate what we have. This is Paul. Paul, inspired by God to write a large, large portion of the New Testament. St. Paul, 
started all these churches. Paul went to spread the gospel to Gentiles, people like me and you. We're here today because of Paul and people like Paul. This Paul, he would wake up in the morning and go, I don't even know if I want to live today. They were burdened excessively. You know, most days, if you're going to be honest and I'm going to be honest, most days you have what it takes to start your day and finish your day. Obstacles are going to come your way. Little nuisances are going to come your way. And you're going to have the God-given resources and ability to handle it. He's given you wisdom. Financial issue comes up. Bill's got to be paid here. God has given you the wisdom to, to handle it. Maybe he's even given you a certain number in your bank account to handle that. Relational problems come up. He's given you the wisdom, the experience to, to handle those things. Most days you wake up, you can handle what's on your plate. But there are moments in life where something comes your way that you honestly don't have the strength to handle. That there is a gap between your strength, your personality, your ability, your resources, and the affliction that has come your way. And in that window where you are not enough, that's where Christ shines in you. When people look at you and what you're going through and they say, I don't, I don't know how they do it. Or I don't know how they do it and somehow still manage to have their joy. I don't know what I would do in their situation. When they see you living in that gap where what you are handling is more than what you can handle. And they hear you and they hear me breathe the name of Jesus in that window. He shines through. And Paul is in that window as he's writing the Corinthians. He's telling them about what it was like to be in that window when they were severely afflicted, when they were burdened excessively, when he despaired of life. And look at one of his anchors, verse 3. Look how he describes God. The season of affliction for the Apostle Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now notice that mercy is plural there. Normally when we're reading the scripture and we think of mercy, we think of it in a singular way. One mercy. What kind of mercy? The mercy that we receive in our salvation. That we are sinners and God is holy and holiness and sin, they don't get to go together. They're diametrically opposed. But God had mercy on us in our sin. And he sent us Jesus to take away our sin, to erase our sin on the cross and through the resurrection. So when we think of mercy, most of the time we're thinking about that kind of mercy, which we have tasted and experienced in salvation. But this says he's the father of mercies, plural, many mercies. And isn't that what you're asking God for in a season of affliction? You're asking for mercy. God, I'm in the middle of this moment. It's more. I'm in the gap. I'm in the window. What I'm having to handle is more than what I can actually handle. I need mercy. I need you to relent. I need you to intervene. I need you to protect me. I need you to be a shield around me. I need you to look down on me and have mercy. I love what happens when you search the Old Testament for the word affliction. You can go on the internet, you can find websites that do that for you. You see the same phrase over and over and over again in the Old Testament when you search the word affliction. It says repeatedly, 
And God saw them in their affliction. That's what happened in the story of Exodus. You remember Exodus chapter 3, the Israelites are in slavery. And I don't know if there's any kind of affliction like slavery. So they're severely afflicted. Moses, meanwhile, he's going to rescue them and deliver them. God's going to use him. But right now he's a shepherd on this mountain just tending his sheep. And remember what happens? A bush is burning and, and God speaks out of the bush. And part of what God says right at the very, very beginning when he's speaking to Moses out of this burning bush, which isn't consumed, is he says, I have seen the affliction of my people. Israel. I mean, isn't that too what you want to know when you're suffering? When you're experiencing pain? Is that God knows that you're experiencing it? In fact, I think most of us are willing to endure affliction as long as he knows we're being afflicted. I remember a long time ago, um, Amanda and I, we just had this, something happen to us that was just a sting. It wasn't, you know, worst case scenario. If we started bragging about all the terrible things that happened to us, I'd be out in the first round. So it wasn't a big deal. It was just a little sting, just a sting. And it, it wasn't something that was going to resolve. It was just, it happened. And now we have to kind of carry it for however long until we forget about it or it doesn't mean anything. And a few weeks after that kind of all came down, that little sting, I was in Florida at a, uh, and I was at church and a worship service and the pastor who was leading the service, he was closing things up and, and he started to pray. And, and when he started to pray, as clearly as I've ever heard God speak to me, I heard him speak to me. It's in the middle of this room, just as confidently as I've ever been, that the voice of God just appeared in my life. I was. And the summary of what he said was, I see you, and I remember. You haven't left my radar. I know exactly where you are at, and I know what you're going through, and I'm with you. Listen, there is nothing more powerful than in a season of pain, in a moment of pain, to hear God say, I have not forgotten you. And he doesn't forget us because he is the father of mercies. Not just one time mercy for you to get you in heaven. But when you pray and I pray, when we are being afflicted and pressed and crushed. He has mercy on us and he is the God of all comfort. Comfort is one of those words that if I asked you, you know, the definition of comfort, you'd be like, yeah, of course, you don't know the definition of comfort. And then I said, define it for me. You'd be like, well, it's a, you know, it's like comfort. It's comfort. I don't know. It's comfort. You know, it's, it's comfort. Comfort is a hard word to, to explain. But when you start looking up, there are two anchors that kind of form the word comfort, courage and hope. That's really what you're describing when you talk about comfort. You know that you're comforted when you look out and you have courage to keep putting one foot in front of the other, to keep enduring, to keep persevering, to keep pressing on. And when you have hope, even though your situation may appear hopeless, you have hope. And when you have those two things, courage and hope, you have been comforted. And then look what Paul wants us to do and what he does with his comfort. Verse 4. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. All of us this morning, you have former pain. Listen, your former pain may not be that former. It may have been yesterday. 
Could have been this morning. You may be mad at your husband right now. He afflicted you on your way here. All of us have former pain. And we have a choice with what we're going to do with that former pain, with that former affliction. We can either keep it personal because pain is personal. You earned your pain. You experienced it. You got on the other side of it. And sometimes it is so personal to us that we feel like the only right thing to do with it, because it was so personal, the only thing that we can do with it is to keep it really, really close. So you think about your former affliction all the time. You wake up and there it is. It's personal. And you can either keep it personal and private. Or you can put it in play. And say, I want God, I want you to use this to bring comfort to someone else. Early in my ministry, uh, I used to hate going to the hospital. I used to hate visiting people in the hospital. I'm ashamed to admit that. But the reason I hated going to visit people in the hospital when they were sick or having surgery is because I was terrified. I was honestly terrified. Uh, my two biggest fears in going to visit people in the hospital early in my ministry is, A, that they were going to be mad at me for coming. Uh, you know, because it's like, I don't think it's very much fun to be in the hospital. And so I just imagine that I would walk into their hospital room and they'd be like, I right, seriously, I'm in the hospital. Just leave me alone. I don't want to talk to people. If I wanted to talk to you, I would have called you and invited you specifically to come up here. But did I call you and invite you to specifically come up here? No, I didn't get out of my room. I was terrified that that would happen. And I know that sounds like an unreasonable fear right now saying it out loud, but it was deep inside of me. I was always afraid that they were going to be mad at me for coming. My second biggest fear is that when I actually got into the room, even if they weren't mad at me, that I would say something really, really dumb, you know, because they're sick. They're in the hospital. And I was always afraid that I walk in and be like, so, you know, how's your day been? And they're like, I'm in the hospital. How do you think my day's been, moron? You know, I was always afraid to say something bad that would be weird. I was always afraid that when I actually went to pray for them, I prayed for the wrong person. You know, I was just, just totally locked up with fear about visiting people in the hospital until I was in the hospital. I spent five days in the hospital. And now I love going to visit people in the hospital. I mean, I'm sad, I'm sad that they're in the hospital, but um, <laughs> so I don't want any of you to go there so I can visit you this week. Uh, but I don't mind it. In fact, I enjoy it. Um, and the difference is, is because I know what it's like to be there. Uh, I know what the food tastes like. Uh, I know how hard it is to sleep in that bed. I know how hard it is to just get some rest when people are coming in and out and in and out and in and out, checking you all the time. I know what it feels like when you're supposed to go home, but you have a fever and you have to stay another day. I know what it's like to go into surgery and I know what the results are going to be when you get out. I know the distinct smell that you get after three or four days of being in the hospital. <laughs> I know what it feels like when you have a wave of visitors and then everyone else goes back home. So now I'm not afraid anymore because I can walk into a hospital room and say, I don't know specifically what it's like to have what it is you have that put you in here. But I know what it's like to be you right now. And so I know how to pray for you. And I know how to talk to you. And I know when to come. And I know when to leave. Because I've been there. Listen, if you and I, we just keep our pain personal. And it's just my thing. And this is what I went through. And I can't share it with anybody. And it's just mine. Listen, it'll turn into bitterness. It'll turn into bitterness. And instead of just carrying your former affliction, you'll end up carrying bitterness deep inside your soul. But when you hand your affliction over 
to God. And say, God, I went through this and it was awful. But I know people around me are walking through the same thing right now and I'm putting it in play. Listen, there is nothing more powerful on planet Earth than you being able to saddle up right next to somebody. Look them deeply in the eye and say, I have been where you have been. And I know that it is dark right now. I know that you can't see the way out of this. I know the kinds of fear that are are swarming your heart right now. And what I'm telling you is I have been where you have been. And you're going to make it through this. And I'm going to be right here the whole time. There is nothing more powerful than somebody laying down their own affliction. To breathe courage and hope into somebody else. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus was afflicted as seriously as anyone has ever been afflicted. And he has suffered. And so he can say to us today, I know what it's like to be you. And I have not forgotten you. And I'm here to comfort you. There is nothing more powerful than that. But what if the situation in your own life or in the life of somebody that you'd like to bring comfort to is just actually pretty hopeless? Amanda and I have a friend who just got a diagnosis. It just feels hopeless. I'm sure it's not hopeless, but it just feels hopeless. And, you know, best case scenario right now is the inevitable just gets pushed off a little while longer. And that doesn't feel very hopeful, does it? What have what do you do in a situation like that? Well, I love the Apostle Paul because he's always obsessed with the resurrection of Jesus. He's just always bringing up the resurrection of Jesus. We kind of save it for one big celebration on Easter Sunday to our great shame. But the Apostle Paul, he's just always bringing it up just randomly in conversation. You know, just try that tomorrow. You know, how's work been? How was your weekend? It was pretty good. Hey, let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus right now. That'd be fantastic. I'm a part of the way. And uh, let's just talk about it. That's what we do. Uh, so he's just always bringing it up. And, and in First and Second Corinthians, he, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus a lot. And he connects it to hope. You know, we connect it to salvation, rightfully so. But he connects it to salvation and to hope. And the reason I think that it connects so well to hope is because when you look at the empty grave of Jesus, it should fill you with hope for two reasons. One, the empty tomb of Jesus should give us hope because it reminds us that there is nothing that is impossible for God. I mean, what honestly is harder than raising the dead? Nothing is harder than raising the dead. And so if God was able to raise Jesus from the dead, he can completely and totally intervene in whatever affliction you are currently walking through or someone you love is currently walking through. The empty tomb of Jesus reminds us nothing is impossible for him. But what if in your situation, it looks like God is not going to do the impossible. He's just going to let the natural set of events run their course, which is what happens sometimes. The resurrection of Jesus should still give us hope because it reminds us that there's something on the other side of death. That there is a kingdom on the other side of death where there is no affliction, where there is no suffering, where there is no pain, where there are no tears. That there's something better than life on the other side of death. And even if you're looking at worst case scenario, when you lay your mind 
on the resurrection of Jesus, you either remember, yeah, there's nothing impossible. I know we're living in a realm of impossibility right now, but there is nothing impossible for him. But even if this just runs its course, I got another thing waiting on me. Or this person that I love, they've got another thing waiting on them if they're in Christ. It fills us with hope. Look at verse 5, and this is where we'll close. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus was afflicted. If you're in His way, then you will be afflicted too. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Are you in a season of affliction right now? A moment of pain? Find your comfort in Christ. In the darkness of what it is that you're going through. Tune your ears to hear Him say, I am the Father of mercies. And I have not forgotten you. You find your courage and your hope in Him. And when you have been comforted, you open your eyes to those around you. And when you see somebody walking through something that you have walked through, you step into that moment and you say, I've been where you've been. And it is dark now. But the light will come. And they can find their courage and their hope in your former affliction. Let's pray.